The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and today we're going to talk about vaccines. I'm joined by Tim Foster, my colleague, and by our special guest today, Dr. Dean Blumberg of the UC Davis School of Medicine, uh, who knows a lot about vaccines, inoculations, vaccinations. Dr. Blumberg, thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Um, Vaccines are on everybody's mind right now because we understand there are several that are in the pipeline to be uh, perfected if uh, not already done so and will be available at some point in the near future. What have you heard about those and what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so there's several vaccines that have been studied and that have gotten pretty far along. The ones in the U.S. that have gotten the farthest along are the um, Pfizer-BioNet vaccine, and that's the one that on December 10th the FDA will be evaluating. And then there's the Moderna vaccine. The FDA will be evaluating that one the next week, December 17th. The other one that's very far along is the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. And then other vaccines that are used in other parts of the world um, that have been tested in ways that are a little bit different than the West are the Sputnik V vaccine that's now available in Russia and um, a vaccine in China that's also available there. What is, what's involved in the evaluation period uh, in terms of length of time? Uh, are we talking about a week to evaluate? I'm talking about the American uh, system. Is there a week or two or a month or more? Or do you have some sense of the time frame there? So, yeah, so um, the, the Pfizer vaccine has already been approved for use in Britain. They, they have a different um, uh, evaluation methodology than in the U.S. So in um, the U.K., what they do is the um, agency that evaluates the vaccines is the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, and they take the information that's already been summarized by the manufacturer and they evaluate that. In the U.S., the, pro- the, the process is different. So the FDA takes the raw data and then evaluates that. So I don't know how long that's going to take. Obviously, there's a huge rush to get this vaccine out there, but they want to make sure that they're doing it safely. So it could be one day, it could be a week, it could be longer. I, I saw this morning that the state of Maine had ordered um, enough vaccine for 12 thousand adults, more than 12,000 adults, about 12,600 adults. Uh, And I'm just wondering where they ordered it from. Does that come from a central clearinghouse in the U.S. or do they order it directly from the the manufacturer or does it go through a a state or a a federal government conduit of some sort of filtering process. Do you know how that would operate? I don't know what's going on in Maine. I know that in most of the U.S. states, what's happening is that the federal government is um, allocating the vaccine individually to states. So I'm not sure if that's their allocation. For example, in California, the governor has stated that the state's first allocation will be 327,000 doses um, of the vaccine. Uh-huh. Is it a, a two-step process? You, you are vaccinated, and then within a week or so, you have a second round of the same uh, vaccination process? Is there a 
sort of you're getting jabbed twice uh, in the in the process? Yeah. So the three leading vaccine candidates, the the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Oxford AstraZeneca, those are two dose series. There's a dose at time zero, and then the second dose is three to four weeks later. And what is the what is the reasoning behind that? I'm obviously they have one. I'm just wondering why does it intensify the original dose, or does it? react to something in the original dose, or is it a mixture of the two that provide the protection? Yeah, this is a common strategy with vaccines, is the first dose is felt to be more of a priming type dose to get the immune system to initially recognize it. And there's certainly an immune response that occurs after that first dose. But often that first dose doesn't give an adequate immune response. So the second dose acts as kind of a booster to result in a higher immune response that hopefully lasts longer also. Is it a, um, a conventional process that we've heard for other kinds of infections? Flu, for example, there are antibodies that are introduced into the bloodstream. The body fights those off and becomes stronger and is able to fight others, other infections off. Is that what's, is that what's going on here? I, I understood the coronavirus is a lot different than the flu, but is the basic, uh, the underlying principle the same? You're introducing antibodies to fight off uh further infection? Yeah, it's kind of the same and it's also kind of different. So the issue is we've all seen the pictures, the schematics of the the virus itself, the round object with the spikes coming off of it. Those spikes, that's the spike protein. And that's really important in terms of infection. That's the first part that attaches to receptors that we have in our respiratory tract and that, that causes the initial infection. So it's felt that if we can be protected against that, then then we can fight off infection. So all of the vaccines aim for an immune response against the spike protein. The traditional way to make a vaccine would be to manufacture that protein. Um, but that would take years. You basically would have to build the manufacturing plant from the ground up. And so that usually takes like seven to 10 years. So these novel mechanisms have been developed to um, make these vaccines in, in really record time. And so the, the Moderna vaccine, for example, is a messenger RNA vaccine similar to the Pfizer vaccine. And the, the genetic code that, that codes for the spike protein is used as the vaccine. It's injected into the person. And then our own cellular mechanisms transcribe that messenger RNA into part of the spike protein. And then we get an immune response to that. And you can scale up manufacturing much faster with this methodology. Well, and doctor, you had mentioned that this was, was an expedited process. And I had read that one of the vaccines had actually been more or less finished back, I think it was February or March, and they have really just been testing all the rest of this time. Do you know, is that accurate? And is that, I mean, is that how this has been going? Yeah, so in anticipation of a pandemic, the researchers um, that developed the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine, they basically built these plug-and-play platforms. So if there was a pandemic and they knew what they wanted to include in the vaccine, they could just plug that fragment into the platform and then rapidly scale up production. So these platforms were already available. So in January, when the entire entire viral um, code of the virus was available, scientists were able to figure out what fragment of that they wanted and then to insert that into the vaccine and, and then develop the vaccine and make sure they get the dosing right and et cetera. So yeah, they, they were able to do that relatively rapidly. That is amazing. Are, are we able to transport it um, from 
you know, hospital to hospital, from manufacturer to hospital. I, I understand at least one of the vaccines requires a storage uh, temperature of storage of below 70 degrees, uh, minus 70 degrees. It sounds incredibly cold, and I'm just wondering, uh, is the vaccine safe as it's transported over time? Is that a consideration? Yeah, that's really cold. That's like being in Antarctica. So it's, it's really cold. So the Pfizer vaccine <laughs> um, has those requirements to be transported at minus 70. Um, and so there's very few places, obviously, that have those storage requirements than to store it at minus 70. Now, research labs and large hospitals might have that um, uh, might have that storage capacity. But then it is stable for a few days at refrigerator temperatures also once it's taken out of the, the deep freeze. The Moderna vaccine doesn't have to be quite as cold. And then the, um, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, that can be transported um, and then stored at, at usual temperatures that, that doctor's offices and all will have available. So that one, for example, is going to be very important for worldwide control of COVID because that's the one that you could get into countries that have less infrastructure. Do you think we'd be able to get um, vaccinations at a Walgreens for at some point when we get this process ironed out, but to go into your local CVS or Walgreens or local pharmacy, you can get flu shots that way now. Is this going to be as common as that, do you expect? Or would we need to go to like, you know, UC Davis Medical Center or Kaiser Permanente facility or a, a large hospital to be vaccinated? So the Pfizer vaccine is the one that's expected to be available first. That one's going to be shipped in very large quantities, minimum of a thousand doses at a time. And that's the one that needs to be stored at minus 70. So that the, that initial vaccine is going to be only available probably at large, large hospitals. Um, then once the Moderna vaccine comes out, that one has less stringent storage requirements and will be um, shipped in smaller quantities. That one you'll be able to get more widely available and you know probably even in pharmacies. And once we get to the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, that one should be widely available. So that one for sure you should be able to get in, in community, community pharmacies and doctor's offices. I've, I've never, to my knowledge, had a vaccination that was coming from something that was minus 70 degrees. So even if they warm it up a bit, uh, what's that like? I mean, does, do you really notice when something that cold goes into your bloodstream or uh, is, there, is there any sort of shock value there to the person that's getting the vaccine? Yeah, just to clarify, that's the long-term storage. It, it needs to be thawed before it's it's given. That's not going to be be injected into you at minus oh, okay. seventy. That that'd give you frostbite. I'm right? glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I see um, percentages of effectiveness, the effectiveness rate. One of them, I think it was Pfizer, was ninety four point five. One of them, I think Moderna, was ninety five percent effective. Is that good for effectiveness? I know you can you don't expect a hundred percent, but is ninety four or ninety five percent? acceptable in terms of effect as an of an effectiveness rate is that is that good yeah that's really exciting that it's that high and you have to take those numbers with a grain of salt because those are preliminary estimates and we still haven't seen the actual data so those are obtained by by press release basically so there's still a lot we don't know about like the methodology that they released and all that so it's it's very difficult to compare from the different studies so the the Moderna and the Pfizer have 90 to 95% protection. The Oxford AstraZeneca said that they had between 60 and 90%, depending on the dose um, dosing that they gave. But they had totally different methodologies. One of them was um, some of these studies just um, tested people if they were symptomatic. And some of these t studies tested 
um, routinely on a routine basis. And so they would be able to tell like asymptomatic infection and possible transmission via that route also. So yeah, but 90%, 90 to 95% is, is, is great. You know, 70% would have been pretty good. Is there a need, do you think, will there be a need to have a recurring vaccination uh, or inoculation? I know with flu shots, I get one every year now. And is that the kind of thing that would happen here? Or would it be sort of a do your two, two-step process and then that's it? Yeah, so ask me in a year because I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. We don't know how long the, the – we don't have an, a, a blood test that tells us like how much antibody or what immune response actually protects against disease. We don't have that correlative immunity yet. So we don't know um, how long the vaccine schedule is going to protect. We don't know if you're going to need a new shot every year. And like all viruses, the coronavirus is constantly mutating, including on that spike protein. So if it mutates enough, will it be like influenza that it drifts enough so that you might need to develop a new vaccine with the latest strain that's circulating? These are all questions that we just we just don't know the answer to. We'll just have to follow over time. Well, let me ask another question that maybe you won't know the answer to, but I know you're a, a doctor and not a historian, but this is going to be a massive, massive worldwide effort. How does this compare to vaccination efforts uh, over the past? The only thing I could think of I'm not that familiar with this history, but would be maybe the polio vaccine. And do you, can you put this in context as far as other vaccination efforts that have gone, gone on in the last hundred years or so? I think polio is the best analogy that I, w- I would think of too. That's a good one because, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, that's when we realized that polio was a disease that we could eliminate because there was no environmental reservoir and humans were the only animals that carried it. And so if we eliminated it from humans, we could eliminate it off the face of the earth. So we're just in the final stages right now of trying to eliminate um, polio. We did it with smallpox. That might be another good um, analogy to um, get rid of smallpox. And now we don't even have to vaccinate the general population against smallpox since that has been eliminated. So, so yeah, I think those are probably the two best analogies. And this is just going to be a huge effort. Um, you know, obviously, everybody wants vaccine for themselves. But it's also important to realize that, you know, in, until we get really not just immunity among ourselves and among our local communities and our state and our country, but we really need immunity throughout the world to really feel safe because the vaccine is not 100% effective. So if there's disease anywhere, it'll be threatening for everywhere. Do you have any uh, sense, I know you work with, with children and you have specialized in pediatric and infections and treating childhood infections. Um, do you have any sense of people being afraid to be vaccinated with this, even when it's available, when we're able to do it? Some people have, I've seen stories, again, mostly in Eastern papers from people who do not want to be the be vaccinated even when it comes out and it's available because they're skeptical of it and, and fearful of it. Do you, have you run into that? And if so, is there any way of helping to convince people to, to participate and be, be vaccinated? Yeah, well, we do live in very polarized times. I mean, who knew that like masks could be politicized, right? I mean, this is basic hygienic measure like toilet paper <laughs> yeah. or washing your hands after you go to the bathroom or something. Like whoever thought that that would be something that people would like say they don't believe in that. So it is basic science. Some people do not believe in basic science. There's always going to be people who believe in conspiracy theories that it's some massive government plot by 
you know, by somebody or by Bill Gates or something to do something. So you, you just you just never know. Um, you know, and for those people, I don't know what you can do to overcome overcome that skepticism. Um, for everybody else, you know, you try to make the process transparent, share the data. We don't want this process rushed. We want the FDA to be very transparent with their process. We want the CDC to be transparent with their recommendations so that um, people can have confidence in the process. Do you think there'll be a cost factor here? Um, uh, would it, can it be covered by, would it, you would expect it to be covered by your regular uh, health insurance coverage, for example, or would it be, uh, is there a per vaccination cost that you see coming or is there a charge of some sort? You know, and initially, meaning like for the first year or so, um, what I've heard is that the government basically is going to supply the vaccine. So they're going to buy it and they're going to supply it free of charge. Um, and so it shouldn't cost anything to get to get vaccinated. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but probably at least for the the, the first year or so, it'll be free of charge. Mm-hmm. I heard that uh, former Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton are going to be vaccinated on live TV. Sound like a pretty good idea to me, especially for people that are skeptical of it. And since we have a you know, bipartisan array of former presidents who are going to do it, it seemed like a good idea. Do you have any notion that that'll have any impact on people? They'll see that and say, well, if it's good enough for them, it's okay by me, I can do it too, if they feel they're safe with it. Or do you think it makes much difference? I think it's always good. That's to, more of a political question, by the way, than a medical question. Yeah, I think it's always good to have, you know, celebrities or well-known people like politicians support these kind of causes. We know that it can also be harmful for celebrities to support causes that are not scientifically proven, like supporting anti-vaccine messages, for example. But having them support that, we know we've done this for years. You know, Elvis Presley participated in um, uh, getting vaccinated against um, uh Polio. When the polio vaccine came out, he he cooperated with March of Dimes, and so for older people who are listening, he was a famous singer. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying maybe we should get Beyonce on board and get a live uh, Beyonce <laughs> vaccination for the coronavirus? <laughs> one uh, one last question: uh, When the vaccine comes out and people start taking it, how long do you think it takes for that? process to have a dent in the pandemic to actually start, we can start seeing a reduction in infections and hospitalizations and deaths. Well, we know that what we need is about 60 to 70 percent of the population to be immune um, in order to get the herd immunity that will mean that we can go back to, um, you know, not social distancing and gathering in large crowds and maybe even not masking. So that's going to take a while to achieve. We think right now in the U.S. we're somewhere below 10 percent of people have been infected. Um, so even if those people are all immune and have long-lasting immunity, which we don't know, we don't know that they do, but if they do, we're going to still need another another 50 to 60 percent of the population vaccinated. And initially, the vaccine is going to be available in limited supply. So maybe that'll be in um, you know the middle of next year. It's hard. It's 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 hard to know. Sure. Okay. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Dean Blumberg. Thank you for your time. Thanks for chatting with us. Thank you. Uh, Jim, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying we'll see you next time around. Thanks.